Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The last several years have seen an increasing number of clinical reports suggesting that depression may be more of an inflammatory process than previously believed. This is changing many of the treatment concepts for difficult-to-treat depressions, and possibly even for some other psychiatric disorders as well. Charles Raisin is a psychiatrist and researcher at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, and he has done a significant amount of research on this topic. He has also generously given us some of his time to explain all of this. Dr. Raisin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. This is initially a very different way of thinking about depression for many people. Is it true that there is now data supporting the notion that difficult-to-treat depressions may result from an inflammatory process? Yeah, there are. In fact, there's a growing list of studies that support this. So basically what studies suggest is that if you take depressed people and measure the levels of inflammation in their blood, say measure a cytokine or something like C-reactive protein, that in general, People that don't respond to antidepressants have higher levels of those biomarkers. And then there's been more recent studies showing that if you actually measure the inflammatory biomarkers in the blood and then look to see who does and doesn't respond to an antidepressant, the higher the biomarkers, the less likely people are to respond. There's a study or two sort of suggesting the same thing with psychotherapy, that people with higher levels of inflammation may not respond as well to psychotherapy either. And so what this, I think, suggests is that we know that inflammation can make people depressed and so that it may be that within a subgroup of depressed people elevated inflammation is setting them up for a depressive disorder that also has as one of its characteristics a pathophysiology that isn't responsive to standard antidepressant treatments. This brings us face to face with a whole series of new terms cytokines, tumor necrosis factors, interleukin and these are not particularly familiar to psychiatry. Can you give us a brief overview of what these are all about? A lot of the terms that one hears bandied about and the ones you just mentioned are molecules that are made by immune cells and that basically are one of the main mechanisms by which immune cells talk to each other and also, as it turns out, talk to the brain. So cytokines are just molecules that have that function, that they have these immune effects. And when they were first discovered, that people thought, well, these are specific to immune cells. But we now know that, of course, these cytokines, they have a much larger scope of activity. So they're not just produced by immune cells. And in fact, they're produced in the brain. And in the brain, they actually function as neurotransmitters. We as humans, we tend to discover things in a certain place and we give it a name and then we we get very, very concrete about it and think that it then belongs in that domain. But in fact, one of the really exciting discoveries of the last decade is that a lot of elements that we think of as being immune elements play very important roles in how the brain functions. And some elements that we think of as brain chemicals have really interesting immune properties. So cytokines are a varied group of molecules. They don't resemble each other particularly, but they have certain classes. And one of the big classes are called interleukins between leukin between white blood cells. And the big inflammatory interleukins are interleukin-1, that's the biggie, and then one called interleukin-6. It's not as potently pro-inflammatory as interleukin-1. It circulates at much higher levels, so a lot of us use it as the best marker for inflammation in the body. Tumor necrosis factor alpha, along with interleukin-1, is the other primary head gate starter sort of pro-inflammatory cytokine, initially discovered in the context of cancer. It was noted that it had the ability to kill certain tumor cells, hence tumor necrosis factor. And so a lot of these have odd names. As with many things in science, their names betray where they were first discovered. But that's the general idea. Another immune molecule that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that also has gotten a lot of praise 
press in the psychiatric literature lately is something called C-reactive protein, or CRP. And this is an acute phase reactive. So it's a protein that's produced by the liver when inflammation is started. It turns out the C-reactive protein has a bunch of effects itself, but it's very useful as a general marker of how much inflammation there is in the body. It tends to be fairly stable, which is why people are now looking at it more and more as a blood test as an indicator of warning for all the inflammatory disorders. C-reactive protein is not used much in psychiatry, but our internal medicine friends use it all the time. Uh, that's right. It is still early in psychiatry. The evidence that something like C-reactive protein would predict not responding to an antidepressant is growing. We did a study where we actually gave people a very, very high-powered anti-inflammatory agent and found that C-reactive protein, in contradistinction, actually powerfully predicted who was going to respond. I suspect until we really develop if we do develop anti-inflammatory strategies that we use for antidepressant purposes, probably until that time, C-reactive protein, I don't, I don't know that it's going to become a standard marker. I mean, the problem in psychiatry is that, in fact, we really have never discovered a standard marker for either diagnosis or for predicting response. It's really been a bugaboo in our field. And, and I don't think that these inflammatory biomarkers are necessarily going to offer widespread promise for predicting things other than they may predict who's going to respond to an anti-inflammatory strategy. If there is an inflammatory process involved in depression, where does the inflammation come from? Is it a virus? Is it a bacterial reaction? Is it something else? Oh, God, that's the million-dollar question. In fact, a, a buddy of mine and a colleague who does a lot of this work, Michael Burke, down in Australia, literally wrote a paper that I can't remember the exact title, but it was, you know, basically, so, so depression is an inflammatory disorder, but where does the inflammation come from? The short answer is people aren't quite sure, so it's actually a very profound question. You can answer it in several ways. Certainly people that have a medical reason for inflammation, like an infection or cancer, have higher levels of inflammation and they tend to get depressed, and there's some evidence that the higher the inflammation, the more likely they are to be depressed. One of the discoveries of the last 15 years or so is that even very mild psychological stressors robustly activate inflammation, right? So you can put people like we often do in our studies into a laboratory stress test where they have to give a speech or something like that. And if you measure their blood repeatedly, you can just watch the inflammatory cytokines up they go. This has been shown over and over again. And people that have vulnerabilities for depression, like people with early life abuse or neglect, have much, much more powerful inflammatory responses to the stressor than other people. So on one level, the answer probably is that activation of the stress system induces inflammation, but it kind of begs the question because you still can say, well, how does the, how does the stress system do it? And we know that immune cells like macrophages and, and, and T cells and dendritic cells that produce inflammatory cytokines have receptors for neurotransmitters and are within stimulation reach of both probably the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. So it may be that immune cells are cranking out the majority of it and they're stimulated by the stress response system. Another idea which is fascinating and for which there's some evidence is that stress might actually open up the barrier of the gut and create what's called a leaky gut, allowing some bacteria to translocate from the lumen, from so inside the gut into the blood, and then those bacteria activate an inflammatory response. So it's really interesting. The debate is sort of on if does stress directly act activate inflammation or does stress basically let in some nasty little bacteria that then secondarily activate inflammation? And we don't really know the answer to that yet. I mean, that's one of the great areas for which we really need to do more research. 
And therefore, it also talks about the incredible importance of looking at the non-biological aspects of this, including diet, cognitive therapy, good general psychotherapy, and changing of one's lifestyle. Oh, definitely. So one of the arguments that inflammation is involved in depression, other than the fact that depressed people have higher levels of inflammation, is that if you make a list of all the best replicated risk factors for depression, they're all pro-inflammatory. So sedentary behavior, pro-inflammatory. Obesity, pro-inflammatory. Processed foods, pro-inflammatory. Sleep loss, pro-inflammatory. Psychological stress, pro-inflammatory. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Conversely, and interestingly, everything that seems to have an antidepressant effect, including psychotherapy and exercise, has an anti-inflammatory effect. And although the data on antidepressants are they're not perfect, the bulk of the data suggests that they also have an anti-inflammatory effect. So in a simple way, and I think this is still very true, for most of us, we have too much inflammation in the modern world, especially if you're overweight, sedentary, not sleeping and feeling stressed out. What you want to do is you want to lower these inflammatory mediators, not just because they damage your heart, but because they signal the brain in ways that set people up to get depressed. Will Advil and aspirin do it? Well, that is a big question. We don't know. There are small studies suggesting that if you add something like Advil or ibuprofen or aspirin to an antidepressant, that you augment the response. There was a very large study that was conducted in Europe, and the results haven't come out yet. The results have lagged in coming out. It makes me suspicious that maybe when they really put it to the test, they didn't see that large a signal. Here's the wrinkle, and this, I would not have believed this had it not been our own study, but I mean, I've spent years talking about how inflammation is bad, bad, bad. So we did this study where we took people that were depressed and they had treatment resistance, right? So these were people that had not responded to antidepressants. And we randomized half these guys, men and women, to get either three infusions of salt water or three infusions of a very, very powerful blocker of the cytokine tumor necrosis factor alpha, a drug called infliximab, which is marketed as Remicade. It's got FDA approval for Crohn's disease and things like that. All it does is turn off inflammatory cytokines. And we were testing to see whether it would work as an antidepressant. Now, the answer is no. If you look at the whole group of depressed people, it does not work any better than placebo. The reason that that was the case was not that it didn't work. It's that it worked significantly better than placebo in depressed people with high levels of inflammation and surprisingly significantly worse than placebo in depressed people with low levels of inflammation. It suggests that there's a U-shaped curve in the relationship between inflammatory activity and mood, emotional state, that once inflammation gets a little high, it promotes depression. But if it gets too low, that may also be bad for your mood. We know that things like these cytokines, tumor necrosis factor, IL-1, IL-6, but especially this TNF-alpha, this tumor necrosis factor alpha, we know that it has some very valuable neurotrophic effects and some valuable effects on things like long-term potentiation, which are essential for memory and things like that at low concentrations. So this line of reasoning is borne out by future studies, and these studies are now underway. If it's borne out, what we're going to find is that, in fact, some of these inflammatory biomarkers may really be valuable as predictors of what to put people on, because if our data are replicated, what we'll find is that Give me 100 depressed people, you'll find that there's about 30 that have levels of inflammation that are really higher than what most people have that are not depressed. Those people are going to probably benefit from some kind of anti-inflammatory strategy. And then there's going to be about another 30% that have their depressed.
depressed as all get out, but their levels of inflammation are low. And if our data hold, you're not going to want to give them an anti-inflammatory strategy. If it's a powerful one, that's going to be too powerful, and it's going to actually be worse than placebo. It's going to damage them. We don't know yet, A, if that's really true, because this is only one study, and B, where do things like aspirin and non-steroidals fall into that mix? So we don't know. We know, though, that another anti-inflammatory and microglial inhibitors, this is a drug that inhibits the inflammatory cells in the brain, something is an antibiotic called minocycline, has shown some very promising early effects, not just in depression, actually, but in treating the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. So whether it's Advil and aspirin or whether it's another anti-inflammatory agent, there's a lot of interest in trying to figure out, is it useful for depression that it'll try to be only useful for inflamed, depressed people? And then how do we figure that out? And we can't forget the monoamine system here as well. It's still so important. It's fascinating to me, but there are enzyme systems that actually become activated by inflammation, and they can actually reduce the availability of the tryptophan to be converted into serotonin. And that alone may be one of the reasons that we're seeing a depressive effect of inflammation. Fascinating. So the monoamine system is directly affected by the inflammatory system. Oh, big time. Big, big, big time. This is almost certainly one of the mechanisms by which inflammation induces depression. So there's an enzyme called indolamine 2,3-deoxygenase. We call it IDO. And IDO exists essentially to clear tryptophan from the body, and it's activated by infection. And the idea is microorganisms are desperate for tryptophan, just like we are. They need to get it from the environment. And so it is sort of evolved antibiotic strategy. You get rid of your tryptophan, you starve the, the bugs and the bugs can't replicate. The tryptophan, when it's depleted, causes a drop in serotonin levels. But we think now, more importantly than that, is the fact that when IDO is activated, tryptophan is converted into a class of molecules called kynurin. And these molecules are generally bad actors. They are excitotoxic. They are they're basically toxic to the brain. And they can themselves stimulate NMDA signaling in bad ways. Some of them can modulate dopamine signaling in ways that may be problematic. We've done some work where we've studied people that were given interferon alpha for hepatitis C. Interferon alpha is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. It, it turns on inflammation, makes people depressed. We gathered blood and we also got cerebrospinal fluid. And we looked at this idea, does this enzyme contribute to depression when people are put under chronic inflammation? The answer is definitely, yeah, there's no doubt about it. But what we found when we measured things in the spinal fluid is that the association was not with reduced serotonin. It was with increased kynurenin. It really is a new world. And in this case, that loss of tryptophan may be the bad actor, may be what is produced instead of what is lost. But there are other ways that cytokines interact with neurotransmitters. So one of the things that inflammatory activation does is it sends out more reuptake pumps to the presynaptic cell surfaces of monoaminergic cells. You think about serotonin or norepinephrine, dopamine, secreted into the synaptic cleft, and then there's those reuptake pumps. And of course, that's what our antidepressant blocks. Cytokines do exactly the opposite. They actually send more of those pumps to the cell surface to get rid of the neurotransmitters. Now, nobody's ever shown that that is associated with depression under inflammation, but it's an interesting mechanism. And then my colleague, really my mentor in all this work, Andy Miller at Emory in Atlanta, has done some really ingenious neuroimaging studies that suggest that when people get something like interferon and become inflamed, they get a loss of dopamine signaling in the basal ganglia. 
and this associates with being tired, losing interest in things. We don't know so much about norepinephrine, but there's now very credible evidence that inflammatory activation reduces serotonin availability, impedes dopaminergic functioning. The other thing that inflammation does is that it wipes out something called tetrahydrobiopterin, or BH4. And BH4 is an absolutely necessary cofactor for the enzymes that produce norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, melatonin. And so we showed also in our interferon work that there's no doubt about it, give people interferon alpha and their BH4 levels tank. They just drop. And that drop is associated with how high inflammation goes in the central nervous system. It's not just that cytokines are involved in monoamine neurotransmission. What's fascinating is that they're involved in so many levels. And then there's a whole emerging story that we don't understand very well yet, but suggesting that, in fact, monoamines may have some very, very powerful immune effects. So, for instance, just to give you a little flavor for this, in looking at genes that increase the risk of developing certain really bad illnesses, like, say, tuberculosis, it often turns out, like, in one of these disorders, the primary genetic risk factor is actually in a dopamine gene, not in an immune gene. The thing that we have to wrap our minds around, and it's hard, is that because we discovered immune stuff in one type of laboratory and we discovered brain stuff in another type of laboratory, we think they're separate, but they're not. Those are just names that we give to these processes, and they really form a very powerful interconnected whole. When we look at the history of antidepressants and their relationship to antibiotics, I think it was in 1957 that the New York Times published an article saying that a drug that was originally slated to be used possibly for tuberculosis ended up having antidepressant effects, and it was a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. There is also another MAOI, the name starts with an L and I'm blanking on it right now, but it is also marketed as an antibiotic. Interesting, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, shocking. And really, one of the cutting frontiers of psychoimmunology these days is the fact that it really is looking like the immune system is, is literally a second brain, that much of how our brain responds danger and threat may in fact be mediated to a significant degree by signals that come from especially T cells in the periphery of the body. So it's really fascinating. In animals now, this is a psychologically stressed animal, and all these macrophages and T cells, sometimes they actually enter the brain, sometimes they just pile up against the meninges of the brain, but they cause the change in all these neurotrophic factors and neurotransmitters, and they really mediate or modulate how the organism responds to stress. So like a fascinating example of this is a, an old colleague of ours who passed away this year, Paul Patterson at, at Caltech, did this fascinating study where he breed these little mice that behave as if they're autistic. And they do that by causing them to be exposed to inflammation in utero. But when they grow up, they are very weird little mice and they have these autistic tendencies. He actually did a bone marrow transplant and found that if he replaced the T cells of these mice, their behavior normalized. Amazing. This autistic-like phenomenon in mice could be reversed, not by doing something directly to the brain, but by changing out the cells of your immune system. I'd like to ask you about the infection defense hypothesis and the hygiene hypothesis. Anyone reading the history of what you're doing is going to come across these two notions. So the infection defense hypothesis is something that we have been at the forefront of advocating. We have something we call pathos-D, pathogen-host defense theory of depression. And that idea is that if you look at the genes that increase the risk for depression. It turns out that there's a whole bunch of them. Each one of them does almost nothing by itself, but these genes are not randomly sort of thrown around the genome. 
many of them are actually in systems that have to do with immunity. If you ask yourself, well, why is it that the genes that we know about that seem to increase the risk for depression are so common? For instance, some of the genes that increase the risk for depression exist almost at 100% prevalence in certain populations. So it's not like these risk genes are very, very rare. These are very common genes. Evolutionary theory dictates that when a gene is common, when, a, when an allele of a gene is common, if it's doing something bad, for it to be maintained by natural selection, it must be doing something good. This is something called pleiotropy. So what could those genes be doing that is good? And to date, and this is the work of Paul Ewald, the only thing that's ever really been found to explain or to support bad genes at high levels is that no matter what else they do bad, they help people survive infection. For instance, sickle cell would be the classic example of that. The other piece of evidence in this infection defense idea is that if you look at the symptoms of sickness and compare them to the symptoms of depression, the overlap is almost 100%, even for things like fever. So we think of fever as being normal in the context of sickness, but there's powerful evidence that if you take groups of depressed people, they show febrile range elevation in body temperature that tends to drop down to normal when they get treatment and they respond to treatment. Things like iron deficiency, you see that in depression. Things like zinc deficiency, you see that in depression. These are all things that are part of the evolved sickness behavior response that mammals get when they're infected. And the reason that that sickness behavior exists, and there's tons of data to support this, is that those symptoms promote survival. Before antibiotics, before hospitals, before hygiene, all the symptoms of sickness, unpleasant as they are, help the host organism generally survive infection. Combining those ideas together, we hit upon the idea, and a couple other people hit upon this also, that it may be that depression, which resembles sickness, may have evolved out of sickness and may exist, and the genes that support it may exist at such high levels because across human evolution, they helped individuals survive infection. We've published a large paper on this. It sounds like kind of a crazy idea when you first hear it, but when you begin to look at the evidence for it, although it's all circumstantial, it's pretty surprising. I mean, if you make a list of the top most likely genes that contribute to depression, they all have very powerful immune effects that help humans survive infections. Again, it's very complex data supporting the simple idea that the genes that evolved, that cause depression evolve because they help you survive infection. Simple to say, the defense of that is quite complex and interesting. That's the infection defense model. The hygiene hypothesis is not necessarily contrary to it, but it's a different evolutionary spin. And the idea there, of course, is that humans, and before humans, primates, before primates, vertebrates in general, have forever existed in a sea of bacteria. Some deadly, many neutral, some beneficial. The main task of the immune system, in fact, is not to attack dangerous things. The main task is not to attack things, right? It's like an army that has to learn when not to fire because most of the bacterial, viral, protozoal things that float around the world are not so dangerous. And if you attack those things, A, you're going to use up all your energy for a wasteful pursuit, which is a real problem. Most times in places, people didn't have a surfeit of, of food. And also, it damages tissue of the body. And so... Here the idea is that across evolutionary time, the organisms that we've been co-evolving with for you know maybe a million years or more became, for the immune systems, teachers of tolerance because they had to be tolerated because they were always present. Over time, the immune system outsourced its tolerance training to these organisms. 
so that essentially when the immune system met them, they secreted the chemicals that taught the immune system to step down, to relax. And so basically they applied this very strong anti-inflammatory break on the activity of the immune system. Then all of a sudden, in the last couple hundred years, you get massive shift in a world where we're no longer surrounded by feces and, and mud and unprocessed food and, and all these things. We live in this very clean world, and that's had the tremendous advantage of stopping us from dying young from infection. But it's had the disadvantage of kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So we're separated now from all these more beneficial, what we've called and what our colleague Graham Rook has named old friend microorganisms that have these very beneficial anti-inflammatory effects. And so the data that people in the modern world that are separated from these microorganisms are at higher risk for all manner of asthma and allergies and autoimmune conditions is very, very strong. What we and others have argued, and which data are increasingly supporting, is the idea that that separation from these old friend microorganisms, because it releases inflammatory tone, should also set people up for psychiatric disorders, not just depression, actually, but schizophrenia and autism and bipolar disorder also. And again, the data on this are just now beginning to come in, but it looks like this is going to probably turn out to be a true thing. It's really remarkable. It's intriguing. It's absolutely intriguing. It's like a good novel. You can't put it down. It's like science fiction. It's fascinating. Dr. Charles Raisin is a psychiatrist and a researcher at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. And, sir, we thank you so much for being with us. Again, if I can use the word, this is absolutely intriguing. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.